Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, two people today, Dr. Jensen Ashley Chief and Caitlin Ann Walzer. Uh, Dr. Jensen, he's from Taiwan. Uh, he, was at, uh, he obtained a PhD from Stanford University, uh, postdoctoral work at Stanford, and he's working with uh, genomic analysis and gene expression to look at the influences of uh, tumor microenvironmental stresses and cancer and, and the heterogeneity tumors. Um, Caitlin's here. Uh, she's now a postdoc at University of Pennsylvania, and uh, she's looking at uh, actual single-cell uh, type analysis. So we'll get into that. I don't want to bungle it, but I want to welcome both of you, and uh, thanks for coming. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Yeah. So, uh, Caitlin, if it's all right, we'll, we'll be focusing in on your work, uh, probably the most fast-moving and, and uh, interesting, just for the sake of this podcast. Uh, please tell me about uh, what you're working on right now, and uh, you know, I'll ask you questions around that. Okay, yeah, so... Um, for over 10 years, actually, I've been working on AP-complexin parasites. Um, I started out on Toxoplasma gondii, which actually is the easiest one to work on. And I progressively um, worked on parasites that are more difficult to handle. So I currently work on a parasite called Cryptosporidium parvum. It causes diarrheal diseases um, in humans. And it's also a big agricultural uh, pathogen. Um, so... I did my PhD with Ashley in the genetics and genomics program at Duke, and I've learned a lot of genomic technologies by being in his lab and through my graduate program. And so I took, you know, the knowledge of um, those genomic technologies and have done a lot of sequencing of parasites. And so currently we did single cell sequencing um, RNA-seq of cryptosporidium parasites. And previously we did not know, you know, the genes that were expressed throughout what's called the asexual cycle. And then also the sexual cycle. So I'll note that what we know so far in parasites is they also have male and female. So there's two mating types. Right. Um, and I've been able to figure out exactly which genes are expressed in each of those mating types um, through single cell sequencing, both in Plasmodium falciparum, but now in Cryptosporidium parvum. All right, cool. well, a bunch of questions here. So Cryptosporidium, um, what are its hosts and how does it uh, get into people? Let's just give a little bit of broad background on it. So um, cryptosporidium is primarily um, an agricultural pathogen. So actually we get our, o if we, it's at the OSA stage is what's transmissible. And so we get our, we get actually get OSIS from cows. Um, and then those OSIS are very environmentally resilient. And so they can just hang out, you know, we get the, um, the OSIS through feces and then those can stay in the environment for long periods of time. And then a human can pick that up um, through many, for multiple ways, but you could buy, you know, for instance, by eating it. <laughs> so then you can end up getting cryptosporidium that way. Um, and, and again, the cycle just continues. Um, and then some, okay. what we want, one, one thing we are trying to figure out there right now is are the oasis um, so they can exit the host, but then we also believe that some of the oasis can reactivate and that actually causes chronic infection. And so why this is such a huge concern is um, in, in many countries, um, particularly in Africa um, and in, in countries in Africa, you can have um, children who already have, are susceptible 
um, to, you know, to this diarrheal disease, but then they keep ha- wasting away um, in terms of having this pathogen chronically infecting right. them. And that's really why it's such a big problem. Huh. Um, how novel is it that you've been able to sequence single cells? That, uh, from what I hear, that's, I mean, that seems to be like a very new technology. And for some reason, I, I don't know why, because I'm a layperson. It's difficult. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, so RNA-seq only became popular um, probably in the, in the 2000s, and we, they quickly moved from being able to do RNA-seq. So actually, my um, advisor here had done microarray, which is previous to um, RNA-seq, and he did that early 2000s. So even in the span of even just 10 years, we've gone from being able to do just sequencing and then taking that to single cell. Um, didn't take you know too long to move the technology forward very quickly. Um, and then I was within the first wave of... Um, of scientists to do this in the malaria-causing species Plasmodium. Um, and it did involve some optimization, but, um, you know, there's been multiple groups now. And it's kind of taken off that we've been able to um, analyze single cells. And so, you know, in the beginning, it was difficult because the first couple of times I did this in graduate school, I didn't have very many, um, didn't get very many reads for my sequencing. It was very difficult to decipher anything from it. But as the technology has improved, we've been able to garner more and more from this data. So in graduate school, I focused on the fluidime technology um, and the SmartSeq, which with what I did there, we only focused on you know tens to hundreds of cells, but now I actually did 10X genomics um, for Cryptosporidium and we were able to get uh, up to like 5,000 cells um, pretty easily. So the technology has um, vastly improved over a short period of time. Yeah, so in the early days, we basically, most people analyze the parasite in the bulk population, where we get hundreds of millions of cells. We all like lice together and analyze the RNA expression. So what KDA had done and uh, powered by different technology is now we actually pick an individual a parasite and analyze the expression, right? So you can understand when you, when you analyze a population, many of the individual uh, differences a kind of mask. You actually never see that. So that until you actually right. start to analyze individual parasite, suddenly you actually see an entirely new world in terms of uh, individual, uh, what Katie called latent heterogeneity. Basically, this, uh, this hmm. difference between different parasites wasn't apparent when they actually sequenced in bulk. And, uh, but when you sequence individual, that's all revealed itself. It's actually, it's a very, very big deal I think as in the early day uh, when I was doing my PhD, people tried to do single cell because a T cell receptor was a sing- each each T cell has different T cell receptor. People use pipette tips and then sometimes use mouse pipetting, try to pick individual cell themselves. So after that, so with an instrument like uh, we were, uh, Katie was using the microfluid device, base device like fluidine that was able to get uh, hundreds of cells, but now actually he's, she's doing this, this uh, next generation, this emulsion lipid droplet-based uh, technology that typically get a couple thousand to 10,000 cells, individual sequence in one swoop. Yeah. So that's become very, very powerful. Questions here about cryptosporidium then. Um, when it's inside a person, does it, is it just one cryptosporidium or there, does it make millions and billions of them? It makes more. So actually, I think that the um, in order to get infected, you only need up to 10 oocysts. So it's very, oh. you can have in just very little and have, have a lot. <laughs> so yes, it does amplify very much once, once it does um, go, goes to your intestines. <laughs> 
Okay, so in someone that uh, is showing symptoms and they're actively sick, what's your guess on how much cryptosporidium they have in them versus someone that seems fine? I wouldn't know that answer off the top of my head. <laughs> the reason I ask is you're doing this single cell you know, analysis now, which is great. But you know, if I've got a, I, from what I've heard, uh, parasites are incredibly diverse, you know, certainly in the sexual reproduction stage. Um, right. Does that happen in people? And if so, wouldn't you have a million different variations of the parasite? So what's the point of sequencing just one of them? Yeah, so yeah, because sex does take place um, in order to create a bunch of different oocysts. And so, like, so far my work has focused on doing in vitro culture, which isn't so diverse. And actually what, what we found, I'm in Boris Strepin's lab, and the, um, one of the graduate students um, determined that in, um, in culture, uh, fertilization is actually blocked. So with what I've done so far, we don't even have some of the in vivo stages, but we work on the mouse model. And through there, we can figure out, you know, and, and then this is, this is the experiment that I wanted to do right before we ended up going into quarantine. So <laughs> we're patiently waiting um, to kind of get the lab started up again so I can do this experiment. But we wanted to do single cell sequencing in vivo to see um, what the sexual stages look like. And then how, how do the parasites then change? We can see that then after they have sex, if there are um, differences in transcription. But I, again, another, another uh, thing that we would like to do in the future is to do D- not just single cell RNA sequencing, but then do DNA sequencing too, but we haven't done that. Yeah, Katie, you may actually talk about your, uh, your PhD work where you're actually using single cell to figure out uh, uh, male and female gametocyte malaria. I think that's actually a, a sexual uh, stage is very relevant. Right, and I think that was very relevant too because um, previously um, it, was, it was focused on a bulk population and you would have all sexual parasites together. And while people also did flow sorting, we never had a good sense of the, d- the developmental progression. So in falciparum, um, the, the, uh, the maturation from asexual to sexual takes up to two weeks, which is a very long time. So through my data set, we were able to decipher earlier on what the male and female differences are. And I think that's very useful, um, not just for, you know, our science interests, but um, in terms of looking at even markers for field isolates, a lot of the markers that are used in for patients are actually only female specific. So P25 is a big one. It's a big marker gene in plasmodium falciparum, but yet it's only female specific. So we don't have a good idea of what the gametocyte carriage um, is for um, for patients. And so I feel that that's one big um, advantage of my work is that we were able to find a bunch of different genes that are male and female specific. And you can't find that. Um, on a I guess um, you could also find too, in a given population, when they do reproduce sexually, do they produce more males than females? And do they have different roles in the host? Um, and yeah, again... So- if you're not seeing, you know, the females or you're not seeing the males, what does that tell you or misinform you about, et cetera? I read papers that said that there are differences. And so actually the, it's a, there's a different ratio. So in falciparum, it's a, and in crypto too, it's also, um, it's a five to one ratio of females to males. So there's so many more females in these species than males. And I've read that there are differences in the male ratio sometimes in um, patient isolates, at least for falciparum. So that can make a difference um, and it's something to look for in terms of what, um, you know, how virulent these parasites are. 
I think the one thing that really got me interested in doing parasite work is understanding um, how virulence factors arise and that often occurs through sex. Um, so it's something I've always been interested in following up in my own research. Yeah, maybe Katie also you mentioned, I think also the other thing is actually this, uh, uh, basically identify this male population is really the power of single cell because yeah. they are so rare that uh, it's very, very, the box cell population is very, very hard to find. It. So Katie was able to find this very, very rare population, right? Yeah. Especially in, in today's, we talk about diversity and individual person. Well, when you see a single cell approach, you can identify a very, very rare cell with a very, very special property. Like I think in parasites, it's very, very relevant, right? It's a male is always ignored because there are so few. And yeah. it's very, very hard to get. Yeah, so we've had the same issue in cryptosporidium. So actually, the paper that we published from our lab um, before I before I arrived is um, in our Nature Microbiology paper. It's mainly a female population that was sexual, but now we've been able to figure out male by doing single cell. And we couldn't do that before. So doing single cell has been very, very helpful um, and really and quickly moving the field forward. Do you notice there's a cycling of the ratios of males to females at different stages? Um, does it correspond with virulence or, you know, remission, etc.? It wouldn't so be so much different stages. It seems to be different strains. So I've noticed, at least when I did this in falciparum, that there are a couple different um, parasite strains that we use. So it's not just one strain that infects for falciparum. You have a, a couple of different ones. And there are differences in male and female ratios for those. Um, so I also remember that uh, our result was feel the male actually is even un- more underrepresented than what's commonly perceived, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Katie, do you want to mention about a specific number to give Jacob a sense? Of oh, I think it was like one in 10 were male. <laughs> yeah, so basically, I think the traditional conventional wisdom was basically one male versus three female. So in your data, it's actually one male in uh, among like 10 female, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, and also this practical is important because uh, the this uh, male and female gametocyte is the only cell that can transmit to another person in, in plasmodium, in yeah. malaria, because uh, basically most of the parasites in our body are, are sexual. They keep going through cycling in the red blood cell. But when they get sucked into the mosquito, they just going to get digested and die. But only this uh, male and female, they will actually, they will mate in a gut a mosquito and actually form the next generation of parasite for interpersonal transmission. So to actually figure out this, uh, this uh, transmission and the mating is a big deal because that's one way we block it. Right. Hmm. So what are you trying to figure out now about cryptosporidium in particular? Um, have you identified you know, between males and females the genes as well? Or is that the malaria parasite? You know, what's so- your current work about? So my current work is I've always been really interested in transcriptional regulators. And so by doing the single cell sequencing, we now have a bunch of different candidates for different stages of the life cycle. So my next goal is to look at um, which regulators are involved in asexual um, uh, progression and also the switch to a sexual progression as well as male and female. Um, And so that'll be the focus of my, I've been in my postdoc for a year now. So we kind of got all the, you know, the genomic stuff done and out of the way. And so now the next step is to take that to a functional study. 
Um, and so in, in, in particular in, um, in parasites, uh, for AP complex, so the AP2 family is very important for stage specific differences. And so in cryptosporidium, there are 16 of those. And I've kind of been able to, you know, hone in on those and see which ones might be uh, important for the different stage specific differences. So that's my next step. The other part of it too, though, is what actually is the advantage of cryptosporidium compared to falciparum. So plasmodium species infect um, red blood cells and, and, and they can also infect liver cells too. But um, cryptosporidium infects intestinal epithelial cells. So what we're, something else we're interested in following up on is the host immune response on a single cell level and to see if there are differences in the host immune response. That's going to be another aspect of my project. How would you, what, what do you mean, what aspects of the host immune response on a single cell level would you look for? So um, I think it's interferon response is important at certain, so the encryptosporidium, it's a 12, what we think it is, is a 12 hour life cycle. So in looking at different gene, immune genes that are um, upregulated at different times, um, we're still trying to figure out exactly, you know, at different parts of the parasite progression, what the immune genes are. But just taking a first look recently at, you know, the human um, sequences in, in RNA-seq compared to the parasite across, you know, time progression, we do see some differences, but we're just trying to figure out exactly what those are and what those mean. So, so I think one thing I just want to actually chop in a little bit. So Jack, uh, you know that the, basically the idea is all these parasites are intracellular parasites, right? They're intracellular pathogen. So their house, they are kind of renter for a house. So they have a landlord, which is uh, in a plasmodium, it's a, basically is a red blood cell. In cryptocurrency, uh, that's an intestinal epithelial cell. So what Katie is thinking about is where you can actually do a single cell RNA sequencing both in a host as well as in the parasite, and then you can pair it together. So is that is that what you're thinking yeah, about, Katie? That's what we're doing. Yeah, because yeah, so, yeah. So that's what, something we we're talking about doing in graduate school. We're actually doing red blood cell together with a malaria parasite. Yeah, yeah. So these parasites are actually inside the cells; they're not in between them. They're, they're in, living they're inside. inside. Yeah. So yeah. when I when I did the sequencing yeah. for ten x, we were able to get within the same. So you capture it via bead, and within the same bead you get the um, you get a host cell and you get a parasite cell. So you can kind of match those up with barcodes and figure out, okay, these are the host transcripts and these are the parasite transcripts. And then you can see what the difference is. So how, how do these parasites get inside these cells? So we're investigating. It's another person in my lab's investigating that. Um, but I know... Maybe you can talk about red cell. Uh, yeah, I can talk more about red cell yeah. than, than the crypto. Um, but... You know, now I'm trying to, <laughs> they, um, it's very quick. I know that because we did, a, but we actually did work with Nick Bushler's lab at Duke or he's at NC state now. Um, but we were investigating how, how, you know, the parasites burst out and then how they end up going to the red blood cell, but they, they attach the red blood cell and then they quickly, you know, invade. Well, so do they enter like a virus does they bind to a receptor and enter or yes. like, has this ever been visualized? Are they large yeah. enough to do that in light, yeah. light microscopy? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So what, what's been seen? How does it uh, how does it happen? At least in some some cases. I'm not sure if I can kind of comment in detail on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's not my area. No, it's interesting. I just don't know if it's um. Is it? I guess it's purely adversarial. The parasite says, "I'm coming in." That's it. And it comes yeah. in and doesn't destroy the cell. And it's not like the cell says, 
All right, you can come in. And allows so, the it in. For, so the parasite forms a parasite. I can't. I, I guess I can't comment on you know the nitty gritty details, but the parasite does form a parasitophorous vacuole. Um, and aping complexins do that. So they just they come in and they form their own little vacuole as they're coming in. And so they have minimal damage then to the host um, host membrane and are able to then kind of burrow into the host cell, you know, and form their own little home. <laughs> I think that's the easiest way to put it um, for a general audience. Okay. Yeah, I just never thought about that. So, interesting. so what, have you, what have you been able to figure out by pairing an individual affected cell with its, you know, its own little parasite, what's seen that wasn't seen before? Um, so, oh, in ter- so an individual parasite, you mean in relation to host cell or just in general with a single parasite? Yeah, like the, the individual cell host to parasite relationship. Yeah. So I'd say it's a work in progress. <laughs> well, the, for example, one of the things we talked about is where it's possible that parasite only invaded a subset of cell, that even though they all look the same thing as a red cell or, a, you know, intestinal epithelial cell, but it's possible parasite only invaded a small percentage of cell we didn't know, right? Morphologically, it looked like a red blood cell or epithelial cell, but they may actually exist either a particularly a cellular receptor or a resistant factor that can determine where certain cells get invaded or not. So it's similar to the recent COVID-19. We always talk about where there's some genetic component of the, either the disease severity or uh, transmission. So we can actually do in a single cell level where you actually compare all the cells, individual whole cell, where they can infect or not infect. That's one level. Another way to look at it is possible. You can also see the host, individual host response to invasion, right? So maybe the host applicant invasion, it triggered interferon response and all the other things. Like, so it's a very, very rich area where you, actually, where you can actually figure out both the tenant and landlord in a like, small apartment. In yeah, a dynamic for, sense. For, yeah. It's amazing, you know, for one person to, to study even one parasite and know everything about it is like, no way. <laughs> There's so yeah. much to know, it's insane. Oh, we, especially with crypto, there's so much we don't know. And then recently, so I, I had um, a couple of publications from my PhD, but there are a number of other groups working on plasmodium um, single cell. And so recently there's been, um, they were able to do single cell and plasmodium vivax, which is actually not able to be cultured um, in the lab. And so, you know, you're now you're able to find um, beyond just doing things, you know, lab based, but you can look at patient and clinical samples um, which I think is highly relevant and highly interesting. Is there a uh, cyst stage for crypto and people? Um, in ter- so there's an oocyst stage. In terms of cyst, n- not that I know of. Oh, what's an oocyst versus? So I'm thinking in terms of cysts. So like, um, so toxoplasma has cysts because toxoplasma can form brain cysts. Um, so that's kind of the chronic stage of toxoplasma. But I don't believe that crypto has the same thing. So the oocyst is just the sexual stage after fertilization. Does that make sense? Oh, but I mean, right. Once it's in you, it doesn't go into a dormant state where it's very difficult to get oh. out of. It, so I the mean. oocyst stage, so that's kind of one thing that we're going to try and figure out um, is, yes, there is an oocyst dormant stage. But like I, I mentioned earlier, we, we know that there's chronic infection in humans. And so some of those oocysts might not be dormant. So at least through single cell, we can see if there are differences in oocysts because um, some papers have mentioned that there are thin-walled and thick-walled oocysts, but we have no idea how those are different. And on a single cell level is how we can figure out 
um, or do they have differential transcription? So that's one goal of my uh, postdoc is to see if that's actually the case. Right, but there's nothing that jumps out at you that, you know, there's no like really thick walled, you know, morphologically different type crypto that you're like, all right, that's its dormant stage. It's not apparent. We think that the thick walled is the dormant stage that would be resilient, exit the host, and then be able to be picked up by other humans or by cattle um, for for greater, for more infection in another host. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think also in Katie's PhD work, I think uh, one of the things she does actually very, very good is that Beyond we get a single cell sequencing, she actually also using in situ uh, hybridization as well as a morphological examination to answer the question you asked. Where a certain transcript she found that the separate different stage actually associated with a particular morphological in the stage mm-hmm. and uh, on the individual cell label. As you can see, because you can actually use in the uh, immunofluorescent and many different techniques to visualize individual cell and match with uh, the RNA expression pattern to exactly answer the question you talked about, yeah. yeah. Okay, how, how easy is it to uh, look at the transcription? Is it quick? You know, I mean, I guess there's this trade-off, you know, you can do single cell, but if it takes a long time or a lot of effort or money to do it, then it's like, uh, but if you could do it really quickly and easily, then even so, though you do single cell, you can load up thousands inside. Yeah, so in my postdoc, I, in the last year I've been here, I learned how to do the computational analysis um, for single cell. And so in the beginning, if you don't know how to do it, it can be difficult. But once you know how to do it, it's very quick. And I'm actually very happy with 10x in particular because their protocol can be done literally in a day. So I, I went ahead and I infected cells. It was, you know, 48-hour time point or so. And then you just, um, you can load those onto the 10x um, and you can do all of this within like two days. And then you have put on the sequencer and you have your data. Um, and, and I have to admit the things go really quickly at Penn for that. So I can have my data within five days. And since I know how to analyze it now, it's very quick. The only thing is it is a little bit pricey, but I think it's worth it. <laughs> but this is data for one cell. I mean, can you load up? Oh no, this is like, this is data. You can do thousands at once because what it, what it, okay. do, it does is each individual one, at least for 10X in particular, I, I think about this a lot now because it's what I'm doing in the meantime, but um, each one has, each, each bead that captures a cell has an individual barcode. So you have an individual barcode for each cell, but then in addition to that, you have an individual, what's called a unique molecular identifier for each individual transcript. So you're, and this is why you're able to even take the host and the parasite together. And you can put those all into, you know, that's that individual cell. And you can put a bunch, like you can do up to 10,000 cells for 10X in just one sample. But then each chip actually has okay. eight wells. So you could actually do 80,000 at once. <laughs> it's crazy. You, you can apply a big data approach while still looking on the individual cell level. Oh, yeah. Which is great. Oh, yeah. 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 I think the, the, yeah. the beautiful about 10X is that they basically make it we are getting a machine as well. So they are basically, they each 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 cell become uh, put in a lipid emulsion or a droplet. So doing a, a, a reverse RNA synthesis, cDNA synthesis, they put a small barcode. And after that, they just lice a whole lipid. So they actually put everything together to sequence together for 10,000 cells together. So relatively per cell basis actually much. Yeah. I mean, this is a real basic question, but the crypto parasite, is it a single cell organism or are you taking one of its cells to analyze? It's a single cell organism. But when we're doing single cell, we're actually doing the single parasite and then the human cell with it. So you have kind of have two cells in there, but yeah, it's single cell. Yeah, I just wonder if, uh, have you found, you know, when you did the genomics, 
was there any, you know, DNA there that uh, was, you know, wasn't accounted for? You know, what if there's a virus that infects crypto? What if there's, uh, you know, again, well, it has its own microbiome? Yeah, it's like phages infect bacteria. Um, I haven't found anything. I mean, but I'm sure the information is there if I need to look for it. <laughs> so far, we've just kind of looked at, you know, aligning the known, um, the, the transcripts to the transcriptome that we know already so that it's, you know, finding what the differential gene expression is. That's kind of been my main focus, but, you know, down the line is to kind of find out, okay, what are the unique genes that we didn't know about before? And by looking at unique genes, then you could probably find something like that. Yeah, so, you okay. know, a, a typical case where you're talking about is like a, a TCGA tumor where they sequence all the, uh, you know, genetic contents of tumor. So after they figure out a mutation, now many uh, groups started to look at a virus sequence and uh, how they related to that, right? So even though the intention was never look at the virus, but the virus data is still there. So people can actually go back to... Hmm. So, so far in looking at the... Um you know, the single parasite. Um, I mean, what have you learned in looking at its, its, its transcriptomics? What, uh, anything that jumps out at you so far? Or, I mean, so, the differentiation between male and female is great, but anything else, yeah. Yeah, so we've found the differences between male and female, but in another paper um, from my post, or sorry, from my graduate work in PLOS Genetics, we looked at the asexual cycle. And what we saw is a couple things. We noticed that there is gene expression. So in Plasmodium, on a bulk cell level, it was found that, and I, you know, concluded uh, very widely throughout the field, that there's a just-in-time expression, that each gene is expressed once during the life cycle, and it's expressed in a smooth transition. And through my single-cell analysis, we found that that's not always the case. So in later stages of asexual, which is what I focused on in my paper, we found that there are distinct transitions, and this was validated through um, the RNA in situ hybridization data. Um, and then we also saw that there was gene expression in particular um, of a gene called EXP2, which is an exported protein that was actually expressed at multiple times throughout the life cycle. And what's interesting is another paper um, had shown that EXP2 actually has dual functions. So that actually makes sense that it's expressed at multiple times, but really on a single cell level is how you can see this differential expression across time. And then finally, one of the other things that we noticed on a single cell level was that there is wide variety in the gene expression level. So for instance, there's genes called rope trees, and these are important for invasion. And these invasion genes show, you know, low expression in some cells, then other cells, they're very high. And so while maybe that could be due to some stage-specific differences, a more interesting conclusion is that potentially, um, you know, maybe some parasites have a higher propensity to invade than others do. And what if they do have some different sorts of, uh, of roles and different functions? And there is very much diversity in these group of parasites. We think that they're all the same, but what if they're not? So we did see um, on, uh, on a transcript level variance in their amount of transcription. Hmm. So what's ahead for you once you get back in the lab? You mentioned so it briefly, but if you could just recap. So this is my first week back. <laughs> we were actually supposed to go back last week. Um, oh, wow. but we are back this week now. So we actually just got the lab started up this week and we're training our new lab manager who just started. Um, but the next step really is to do more of the single cell. So we have the in vitro work, um, but to do, to do more of the stages and then to figure out, you know, I already have candidates to follow up functionally, but there are more that we want to follow up on based on additional data. Um, I think a key thing, at least for crypto is there's only one, um, 
one treatment available, and that treatment is actually not um, very useful for people who are immunocompromised. So I hope that my work can lead to additional candidates for treatments for cryptosporidium. That's really one of the reasons why I got into doing science is because, you know, I really want to be able to, my work to have an effect on on helping people um, who have these diseases and are, who are infected by these parasites. So those are the main next steps. And as I had mentioned before, also looking at the host immune versus going to be another big thing um, in, in our lab. And last data point, how many people worldwide uh, on average are affected by cryptosporidium? So I think it's, I think in, in terms of infections, it's, it's millions. Um, but in terms of deaths, it's not as high. So malaria is much more deadly. I can I know that malaria is over 400,000 um, deaths per year, which is very high. And, and 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 I think about a lot in terms of even COVID now, because you know a, a hundreds, a thousands of people have died. But even every year, still 400,000 people die of malaria. I guess said crypto is less than that. It's only in the I think it's I think it's 48,000. Um, but but millions of the, the issue with crypto more so though is it's not it, it is deadly, but it, it leads to, um, you know, not as high quality of a life for many children who are affected by it because it's, these are lifelong effects. So they have stunted growth. They, you know, they don't have, once they're infected as young children, um, they're, you know, it, it's, it's a tough road back. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Well, uh, Ashley and uh, yes. thank, thanks for both of you to come. I appreciate it. Um, I'm trying to hang on, you know, by the, the seat of my pants because it's complicated stuff, but, you and Caitlin explained it very well. So thank you both for coming. And what's Thanks the best way for, for people to find out more about uh, Caitlin's work and then perhaps yours, Ashley, as well? So actually, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, go give you a, a copy, a link to the two of Katie's paper. I think uh, that's sure. uh, in her sister's work. There's also been a, a open access journal. So any of your audience can just go there and look in for themselves. All this uh, paper are freely available. And uh, we're really, very happy to answer any question in the future. Well, very good. Thank you both for coming. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.